Welcome to On Living, the Trauma and Beauty of Being Human with Dr. Leanne Nguyen. Have you ever asked yourself what it means to be human? What does it mean to be fully alive? What does it take to love, to really connect with another human being? How do we fully engage with and honor the humanity in us? It's time to really talk, listen to, and connect with one another. Come join in the conversation with your host, Dr. Leanne Nguyen. Good morning, everybody. Uh, This is Leanne Nguyen speaking to you from uh, Brooklyn in New York. So today, uh, I continue my conversation with Pardis Kebriai. As you know, who tuned in last week, she is an attorney at the Center for Constitutional Right, uh, an organization based in New York City. And she has spent the last decade or more taking on cases on behalf of people whose constitutional rights are violated by the U.S. government in the name of, oh, I don't know, national security, public safety, morality. I don't really know uh, what other fancy principles the government invokes um, on and off to uh, rob people of their lives and their rights. Um, But last week we talked about the detainees of Guantanamo Bay, men mostly from the Middle East um, of Islamic faith, who were caught up in the post-9-11 spasm of fear and rage that the U.S. government uh, wrapped itself up in the pretty name of, of, of war against terrorism. And these men were taken from their home country uh, or from the ordinary context of their human lives, you know, and and put on this patch of land um, isolated from civilization, this patch of land called the Guantanamo. And they languished there for 10, 12, 15, 16 years. Um, So Pardis explained to us last week the legal issues that she and her colleagues uh, face in advocating for these men who were subjected to torture and held and treated as criminals, but not able to access basic constitutional legal means, you know, such as the right to know the specific charges against them or to examine the evidence that the government has um, against them or just the basic right to defend themselves. These men also, she explained to us, you know, were unable to access basic life resources such as human contact, the ability to practice their faith, uh, and the access to their loved ones, actually access to any human other than their lawyers, lawyers who dedicate their time, their energy, their training, their Ivy League credentials to push uphill the Sisyphus boulder of trying to get the government to recognize and enforce and restore the uh, the humanity, the rights of these human beings. So can you imagine living for 10, 15 years on an island, you know, plucked away from your life and and isolated from all human contact? You know, no voice, no rights, no pursuit other than that of staying alive. And for what? So this is where our conversation ended last week uh, when Pardis was describing how these men, quote unquote, survive, how they manage to stay human. Um, And so I want to know more. You know, one hour last week wasn't enough for me to find out about how these men exist, how they live, and how they manage to stay human if they do. I I want to know how they connect 
with her, with their lawyers. The only connection that they have to the outside normal world. And I want to know how Pardis connected with them, what she took from her 10 plus years of being with them. Um, why do I want to know? Well, because as Pardis said last week, and I'm going to paraphrase her imperfectly, you don't know what you're capable of until you have to. You don't know how you manage to survive until you absolutely have to. So I want to know about them, about that process, because I want to learn something about us humans, about myself, about what we may be capable of. So we're going to spend a second hour together, Pradis and I, uh, Pradis and we. Now, I just want to say one word before I we start um, about this programming choice of mine. You know, the deal that I had with the network Voice America is that I can use the show to promote my my um, my business, my brand, and get exposure and get the word out about my product and my message and increase following and so on and so forth. So to that end, you know, I was told I should invite. I should pick topics that people want, topics that are popular and accessible and useful and inspirational, Um, you know, how to battle depression, how to make money, how to, I don't know, have happiness. Um, And I should invite guests that would increase, help me increase my ratings or social media exposure, um, all of that real world stuff. And I, I should I should pick people who can increase my, my reach, basically. So <laughs> you can imagine how the discussions went with my choice, you know, this, this past week. You know, uh, a lady lawyer who fought a losing battle for a decade against the government and fighting for Muslim men that nobody knows about or really cares about. Um, they certainly don't have social media handles. And I was asked, you are going to do it again for a second week? Well, um, and, you know, I was asked, that, that's how you're going to increase your, your exposure, promote your product? Well, here's, just to explain, you know, here's my method. Here's the method of my madness. Here's my perspective, you know, that we are really a speck of dirt, you know, we are a blip in the history of the universe. We, we're here for a blink in time. And so the question is, what are we each going to do with that brief time with our fragile, imperfect, insignificant being on this earth? Uh, we all have ambitions and wishes, and we all manage to have some kind of purpose for the length of time that we breathe alive. My ambition is to live in a world where I can really connect with other human beings, a world where we take time to listen, to talk, to pay attention to each other, to learn from each other. We take time to exercise our capacity for kindness and tenderness. A world where we have the resources and offer support to each other for, for deep listening, you know, for genuine being and for the courage to be authentic, to be the, the, the bravery to follow our convictions and our purpose. Now, that world is not always possible, as you can see if you look around you. It is more and more under assault by greed and fear and hatred. And I keep being told there is no time. My purpose is to find it, to find that world and to make that world happen as much as I can, however little. 
for myself, for my children, for my patients, for anyone whom I encounter on my path. So for one hour each week on this radio show, I dedicate myself to that purpose, to that ambition. I indulge in my vision and my passion for the kind of world I want to live in. And so for one hour, I get to live in that world, right? I get to try to create for a brief moment the kind of world and connection that nourishes me and that I hope, I believe, should nourish you too, where we pay attention to human lives, where we talk and listen to each other and connect and learn from each other and support each other in what we are trying to do in the good, the kind, the loving, the meaningful that we each are trying to do in this life. So that's my thing. <laughs> good morning, parties. Let's talk. Good morning. <laughs> Welcome back. Nice to be with you. <laughs> yes, it's so delightful. Can you believe it? Like, right in this world where of, of the four-minute blog read and, you know, the soundbite, we get to spend more time together. <laughs> no, I appreciate you having me back on, Leanne. Yeah, and thank you and for coming And by the way, I, I get the question all the time, too, um, in terms of the work I could be doing, you know, why these 40-minute Guantanamo? Um, so I really... Yes. So tell me, tell us, why are you doing this? Wasn't it for you? Um, There's a book, right, coming out or something. <laughs> yeah, that's Certainly not the money. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I am trying to remember our conversation last year. I think it's, it's changed for me um, over the years because it's been a long time now that I and, and everyone else who's been at this issue have been doing it. It's been 16 years of the prison and, you know, um, 14 years since we've been able to... to be going down and, and meeting with detainees. So it's changed. Um, I mean, I think, um, I think I said last week, you know, initially I was really just struck by the torture. Um, you know, it's really palpable um, what was being done to these men. And so I think my outrage and um, it, it was really terrifying to, to see, um, to think about, you know, the power of the government and, and its abuse and how it was sort of manifesting on the bodies of these men. There were hundreds there at the time, and Guantanamo has held nearly 800 people. So when I started going down in 2007, um, there were many more people there than there are now. And they had been held for six years without rights. Mm -hmm. Um, This was after, you know, the the sort of physical torture that we talk about. I mean, um, it's, you know, we talk about, medieval torture by other states and governments um, and, and the barbarity that we see around the world by other countries. And we could think about, you know, the news today or this week and sort of imagine those examples that are being reported. I think it's just, it's harder for the public here to conceive of their own government as doing those sorts of things. And I think... Um, Would you mind? It's harder to, just ed- yeah. uh, but it's just educate us very quickly because torture is so, it's just a word. Would you mind giving a big some, some... Yeah, about a practice quickly? Sure, sure. I mean, I, you know, it's that's changed too. In the early days of Guantanamo, it looked like very sort of physical, overt, extreme, physical force, um, ways of 
physically and psychologically experimenting on detainees. There is a whole, for people who are interested in, in knowing more of the, the details, um, the Senate, there's a Senate committee, the Senate Select Committee on, on Intelligence conducted a very thorough study of the detention interrogation program under the CIA in the Bush years, during the, the years of the Bush administration. And there is a whole report of thousands of pages hundreds of pages of which have been unclassified and are available online that go into painful detail of what um, the CIA did to people in their sites um, under the Bush administration. Um, you know, I, I have restrictions on what I can say or acknowledge oh. about what has been done to men, men that I visit at Guantanamo okay. today who are, who are living examples of this. But those details are in the report. They're just okay. um, some of those that have been leaked. I mean, just um, physical beatings, um, waterboarding um, at Guantanamo, not by the CIA, but by the military with a client. This has been leaked and is, is disclosed, you know, leading... Um, leading people around on dog leashes in interrogation rooms, subjecting them to sexual abuse um, and hum- humiliation, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. depriving them of sleep, um, those kinds of things. Um, that's mm-hmm. what torture looked like in the early days. Well, really, basic, basically they imported what they did in Abu Ghraib, you know, to on the Iraqis uh, right. to Guantanamo Bay. And, well, you know, I maybe I can say I'm not under what surveillance, well, maybe I am, I don't know. <laughs> Well, I'm not held by the same national security rules that you are, right? But so I can say mm-hmm. you're in solitary confinement when you squeeze into a tiny, tiny little cell mm-hmm. where you can't even stand up, right? For mm-hmm. for basically 23 hours a day, uh, being in a room with no sound, no 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 light, sensory deprivation, right? And extreme sensory conditions, uh, and and being blasted loud music for hours and hours where you can't sleep mm-hmm. and think straight, and you don't have any access to human touch, you know, a human sight. Just just try to go for a day, right, without right. without seeing any light, any human being, and hearing any human sound just for one day and imagine for years on end to live like that. And also on top of that, right, to not know why the heck you are there and when mm-hmm. it's going to end. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's the humiliation, too. You mentioned the sexual humiliation, and also, you know, the the the, the degradation that's done to their faith, right? Having the Quran being peed on or thrown down the toilet and defaced and so on. So, anyway, right, that's a brief tour. So, of, it, yeah. Of the, mm-hmm, yeah, I mean, it mm-hmm. looked like uh, those sort of overt things, and just, you mentioned solitary, and I briefly mentioned this last week, I think you can't talk about torture at Guantanamo without, and solitary confinement in particular, without uh, without thinking about or knowing about what happens in U.S. prisons here to thousands of people. So just that experience of being in a small cell that you can touch, you know, reach across if you sort of spread out your arms on all sides um, in a box or a cage for 22 to 24 hours a day for years and decades um, mm-hmm. is an experience that thousands and thousands of prisoners experience um, here in, in American citizens. Here. Yeah. American, American citizens, foreign yeah. citizens, but in, in prisons in the cities we live in, not yeah. remote at Guantanamo, not, you know, right. out of sight, but here mm-hmm. um, in our cities so in, that's, in downtown um, Manhattan. So that's that that outrage was originally why you were doing the work. Just to go back to the question of you know what what's in this for you? Just to feel like you were doing right. something. 
Mm-hmm. And then? Yeah, I, I think a, a response to that. I mean, I think um, over time, you know, as the population has dwindled at Guantanamo and there are sort of today you look around and there are just violations on a mass scale, you know, mass exclusion, um, mass detention, just huge, huge problems and, and massive levels of abuse. When I think about why Guantanamo um, given the population there. And, um, you know, I think in part it is because I don't think those sort of, I don't think you get to a place of tearing children apart from their parents and warehousing them in detention centers overnight. I think that it is an incremental process. Um, you know, sort of an, one outrage after another and sort of becoming numb in a way to what, we do to people mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in terms of punishment and how we treat, you know, people we fear, people we think are enemies, um, people we believe are criminal. I think it's an incremental process. And I, mm-hmm. you know, and I look at sort of the mass violations around in our country today and in the world today, I just, I think that Guantanamo anyway is one, one step along the way of getting to a place where, you know, we are allowing, you know, we, we are doing and sort of those of us who are watching this happen and not doing much about it other than feeling our own personal outrage are complicit too in, mm-hmm. in the policies of, of the government and the administration today. Um, I mean, it is horrific, you know, that when you see two-year-olds being held in detention apart from their parents and you think about the trauma that that's inflicting mm-hmm. on them and this question of, well, how did we get here? I think mm-hmm. things like Guantanamo are part of that answer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where we just do it, we just inflict cruelty blindly, you know, in, in, and invoking some really basically arbitrary reason. Security, right. what the hell is that, right? Safety. Right. Um, right. And, uh, and they're extreme and outrageous at the time. And there's a reaction at the time, and then we become numb, or the news cycle moves on. And then mm-hmm. there's another mm-hmm. moment that's mm-hmm. slightly further, sli- slightly pushing the edge of what can be made permissible mm-hmm. um, or allowable. And there's yeah. another you know, moment of outrage and a response, and then we move on. And there's, mm-hmm. you know, it's that sort of incremental process over time that I think is how, in part, we get to places of doing what mm-hmm. we're doing today. Yeah. And you were trying to do your part to mitigate that, to protest against that, to stem the tide? Well, I, it's how I explain, in part, um, in part, the importance of continuing to do the work of Guantanamo and represent men there today. Um, mm-hmm. when, I, when I think about it, you know, what else I could be doing, and there are other, other things that I and my organization and colleagues are doing um, yeah. in addition to Guantanamo, but well, why I continue doing that work, it's, it's in part because I think it's part of the root of mm-hmm. how we've gotten to this chaotic right. and just, um, you know, this out-of-control place um, yeah. of, of government policy today. <clears throat> and then also a commitment as well to the people I represent. Um, I've been with them for, you know, a decade. Right. And, and I really, I, I, I want to, um, I want to talk about that, um, you know, when we come back from the break, I really want to talk about what you were trying to do 
with these specific men, you know, once you got to the reality of, um, of, of, of your purpose, of your mission. So let me take a break for now very quickly and we'll come back with that question. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Do you ever feel that you need to make changes but don't know how? Ever wish for someone who can help you find true purpose and make new choices? Dr. Nguyen is this person. Her passion is to help people bridge the gap between where they are and where they want to be. With Dr. Nguyen, you will enter a conversation that is unlike any other. You will make contact with yourself at a depth you never thought you could. You will give yourself an encounter with new thoughts, deep questions, and a renewed faith in your birthright to live the life you are meant to live. Dr. Nguyen's practice has been available to people from all over the world, across cultures and identities. She has built it as a lighthouse and a safe haven to give the deep support and clarity so you can fulfill the promise that you once made to yourself to live your purpose. Whether you are in New York City or anywhere in the world, visit her at drleanne.com. You can also contact her for a free consultation in person or on Skype. The website again is drleanh.com. Do you think about what you really want? Are you looking to change or perfect your environment, your value, your life? We can help. Tune in to Everyday News with the Blantons. Hosted by husband and wife team Mark and Dr. Latasha Blanton, our program will help you find the answers to make the changes in your life with inspiring guests that can help you find your sense of place in the world and how you view it. Listen live every Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to On Living. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to ldnewin.phd at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Here again is Dr. Leanne Nguyen. Welcome back to the conversation I'm having with uh, Pradeesh Kebriai about her work through the Center for Constitutional Right with the men in Guantanamo. Uh, so, Pradeesh, you were with these men for 10 plus years. Who did they become to you? It started out as a cause. You were doing your civic duty. You know, you did not want to be a bystander. And then you would fly down there regularly and then spend time with them. You were the only emissary from from the real world. Um, and so for, who, who did they become? Who are they to you now? Um, you know, I think the reasons why I got into the worship, of course, what, the reason why each of us chooses to do anything, um, you know, there are professional and sort of personal ways that the work connects to, to you or can connect to you individually as well. So I think there's part of that um, just in terms of wanting to or feeling compelled to challenge U.S. government abuse um, in the national security and sort of foreign policy realm. Um, but I think over time, 
um, you know, there's a connection and a, and a responsibility and, um, you know, I, I think there, this is something that um, I think one could say about working in prison anywhere, but also it's particular in some ways in the Guantanamo context. I think people on the outside are so crucial in terms of being a lifeline um, to people on the inside. Um, I think generally, the more I've done this work and thought about prison, and prison is a bizarre, closed, alternate world. And yeah. those of us on the outside who are their lawyers or advocates or family members or religious advisors, I mean, there is, you've no idea, or maybe those who have contact with the prison system do know how, how vital and how essential those people are on the outside to keep to sustaining Mm-hmm. Um, sustaining hope, sustaining life, keeping them going. Um, that's even more intense, I think, in the Guantanamo context because I said this last week, you know, the lawyers are really the, the only point of human contact, um, person-to-person, face-to-face contact that prisoners have with anyone other than the government and their jailers and people who work for the government who are part of that system. So um, there's something you know, weighty, um, that, that goes with having started this work and uh, representing men from the beginning and feeling like, you know, we kind of can't stop until, um, until it's over, until the work is over. And, for that, and that means, you know, release um, mm-hmm. for the people we represent. Ultimately, you know, closure of Guantanamo. It's a massive undertaking. Guantanamo is fully entrenched. It is very hard to close down any prison, uh, let alone mm-hmm. Guantanamo, but that is um, the ultimate goal, um, mm-hmm. along with the release of people or, or real justice for those who are, you know, who have been charged and will be tried, um, you know, mm-hmm. a fair process for them. Yeah. Where do they go if and when they're released? They, um, it, it's depended. Um, the majority, well, I, I guess some have been repatriated. Um, you know, people who are from countries um, where the government has, has deemed, you know, it's safe to repatriate them. They've been sent back to their families. Um, that, that's included um, men from Afghanistan, uh, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan. Um, you know, there were over, I think, over 40 countries that people were from. So many were repatriated. Um, for the men who remain, and I, and I would say for, for most of the men who've been in prison in its more recent phase, most of them were Yemeni and are Yemeni. And mm-hmm. um, because their country is in conflict, largely because of U.S. meddling and, um, well, not meddling, more than meddling, U.S. targeting <laughs> uh-huh. um, since... 2009 with airstrikes and drone mm-hmm. strikes and, and now support for Saudi Arabia in its indiscriminate bombing of civilians. Mm-hmm. Um, the country is... Um, it doesn't exist you know, anymore. Of, yeah, it's very... Well, I mean, <laughs> I would want to defer to Yemenis who live there, <laughs> um, but the level of destruction and damage and displacement yeah. is massive and overwhelming. Um, it's so they have nowhere to go. So upsetting. Back to. Well, so the, 
that said, though, there you know countries in conflict, but there are still people living there, and that may not be the entire country. And so our argument has always been the government needs to look at the individual circumstances of each person and decide if it's safe to, or if they can be repatriated or need to be resettled. The government has, under Obama as well, has taken a blanket position that no Yemeni will be returned to Yemen. So all of those men have had to be resettled. Um, as pseudo-refugees. I mean, they are refugees. They've never been recognized officially as refugees, but they've been, most of them have been resettled in third countries in all over the world, um, you know, in random places like parts of Africa, random with respect to their own culture and language and what they're right. familiar with and where their families are and all the things that give life meaning. Um, it's very random and arbitrary in that sense. So, in that sense. so they've just been sort of dumped literally dumped mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. Um, in countries around the world and left to try to pick up the pieces um, on their own. And that's, uh, I mean, that itself, the way that the, that the Obama administration um, had resettled, transferred, released and transferred and resettled people is, is itself, um, you know, a whole segment you could talk about mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in terms of the lack of, any um, reckoning or accountability for what was done to those men. Right. Um, and it parallels also, you mentioned uh, like what's being done in the correctional system uh, domestically, you know, right. why you describe the, the irresponsible, you know, abandonment of people that right. you then quote unquote release back into society. That parallels, right. you know, the failure in U.S. on U.S. soil too, right? All these people who have served time and pay their debts, so-called, to society, they just release right. onto the street with no help, no. Right. Yeah. Um, but so, are you are you still in touch with your clients who have been released? Uh, some of them, yeah. Um, you know, there's a. I talked about them before. A father and son who were who were Syrian and were um, detained at the same time in Guantanamo. Though they were held apart the entire time, the years that they were held in Guantanamo, they were um, separated, not allowed to see each other. Um, mm-hmm. But they they were transferred. One, the son went to Portugal, and the father was resettled in Cape Verde. I mean, talk about arbitrary and random. He's a Syrian man who had never lived outside of his country or the region other than in Guantanamo, and he's now in an Afro-Caribbean, you know, culture environment. What language alone. do they speak? I mean, in, so the son has Portuguese. to learn Portuguese. Portuguese, and, and the father and as well. Also? Okay. Um, okay. So, uh, yeah, um, but uh, alone. I mean, and I think mm-hmm. that, just pausing for a minute, and it's not, you know, not unlike the refugee experience for many people, um, but I think, you know, it's different to think about a Guantanamo detainee that way, and that maybe people don't think think of it as sort of a refugee experience, but this is someone who was held in Guantanamo for seven years um, and, you know, subjected to all the torture that has been documented there, and then put on a plane, much the way he came in, and led off in, in Cape Verde, mm-hmm. um, and is now, you know, still living alone after years. Um, his family, because they're Syrian, um, they've been displaced. The rest of the family has been displaced, and um, they have not managed to reunite for a combination of um, factors. Mm-hmm. But I'm in touch with them, and, you know, on a brighter side, I guess, the, the son um, is a happy story. It, you know, 
there's not a happy ending because he's still rebuilding, but it's a it's a, a hopeful um, hopeful story in that he um, struggled a lot at Guantanamo. He was 17 or 18 when he was first captured, so you know a, a juvenile, a child, literally under the law, um, and held incommunicado for years. You know, torn apart from his father, um, held in solitary confinement. Uh, when I was meeting him at, the, at Guantanamo, he, you know, he used to sort of beat his head against the walls. It was literally losing his his mind. Um, he was transferred in 2009. Struggled a lot in in Portugal uh, because he was alone. His father was still in Guantanamo. Um, the son went first, and that was part of the cruelty of the government was not only holding them apart in Guantanamo, but transferring them separately and to separate countries and at different times and and. You know, the son went first, so it was agonizing for him to leave his dad behind. Um, and he really struggled in the first months of his resettlement and even the first years. But um, today, you know, he is um, it's, it's 10 years removed, 9 years removed, which is just remarkable. And I, you know, when we talk now, I don't think of him as sort of my client, the former <laughs> prisoner. It's really, he's just himself. Um, mm-hmm. And he has a family. He has children. Uh, he speaks Portuguese fluently, he's working, um, there's a life. And mm-hmm. um, so that is really hopeful. And I think that's mm-hmm. happened for some men, particularly those who've been able to reunite with their families or have happened to land in a good resettlement country, good meaning that you know there was support by the government to help them reintegrate. Um, you know, that's not the case at all with um, many or I don't, I don't know if it would be fair to say most, but many, many men have really continued to struggle years after, and particularly those who've been resettled, again, because they're alone, they're in a foreign environment, um, they're dependent on the, their host government for support, um, there's years of trauma and torture that has not been dealt with, mm-hmm. um, and their legal status also, I mean, that's another piece of it, and that's a connection to the reentry experience of people in the United States as well. Legally, there are all kinds of obstacles if you were at Guantanamo for them or if you've been in prison here in terms of being able to get get a job, vote, um, become a lawyer. There was just an amazing piece in the New York Times Magazine about um, a man who served time in prison and is a lawyer, went to law school, went to Yale Law School, um, and, you know, had trouble passing the bar or getting admit, admitted to the bar because of his conviction. Right, right. Uh, right. Based on a crime yeah. that happened when he was a teenager. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but so a lot of, of, of former Guantanamo detainees continue to struggle um, in terms of the legal yeah. barriers to work. And, what and what, what like about you, though, Pardis? I'm sorry to put the spotlight on you. You're talking about what becomes of them and, you know, what they do do now, what have you taken from your relationships, from your connections with them? How, how has it changed you, even in a small way? Um, yeah, I think it's um, made me think a lot about um, resilience um, in them and in myself and what it takes to continue to try to be resilient and the ways and this is you know we were talking about this before not just the 
beautiful ways that, you know, people make movies about, but the, the harder ways, the ways that really um, distorts, can distort you, can distort one's personality, can distort one's um, view of the world. Um, I think there's been that distorting effect uh, on my clients and even, you know... Can you give an example? Lawyers. Well, I, I'm, with respect to clients, I'm thinking of a particular conversation I had with someone a few years ago. Um, this was um, still under the Obama administration, and we were talking about the Obama administration's so-called plan to close Guantanamo, which meant it was really just to um, transfer some number of men who the government had approved for transfer for release and then bring everyone else who was left to supermax prisons in the United States. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't really a closure plan. It was just sort of a relocation plan. Um, and I was talking to him about the prospect of um, not being released and just being put on a plane again, only to be brought to another U.S. prison here. Mm-hmm. And I was sort of saying, you know, I imagine that that would just be the last straw for the people who remained, that that would sort of break them. And anticipating, you know, major crisis. And he kind of, you know, he surprised me because he said, um, you know, actually, no, we'll, we'll survive. Um, we've been through everything and we will survive this too. Um, and I just thought a lot about that. Um, just that, that they wouldn't be broken and they would survive, but just thinking about how they would survive and what that would look like and, and the sort of distorted and bent ways that people manage mm-hmm. to try to make it, um, but without, you know, so short of, of fully living, um, mm-hmm. you know. So I, that was sort of an example to me of, of survival and resilience, but sort of... Um, what does it mean, right? Contorted, in such a contorted way, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, right. Does, and I, I want to ask you to think a little bit, we're approaching uh, our second break in, in a couple of minutes. But So you've been thinking a lot. May you think about that notion of resilience for yourself too? And I wonder if it has, um, if it has changed the way that, that, that you approach life, you know, the way that you view your time through this life, from watching these men, you know, from watching them grow up and grow old, <laughs> right? So is it, is, it, I want, is it a fair question to ask you and, and tell, to ask you to tell us when we get back from the break? Sure. Okay. All right, folks. we will just going <laughs> to take off for a couple of minutes and we'll be back with Pradis. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Do you ever feel that you need to make changes but don't know how? Ever wish for someone who can help you find true purpose and make new choices? Dr. Nguyen is this person. Her passion is to help people bridge the gap between where they are and where they want to be. With Dr. Nguyen, you will enter a conversation that is unlike any other. You will make contact with yourself at a depth you never thought you could. You will give yourself an encounter with new thoughts, deep questions, and a renewed faith in your birthright to live the life you are meant to live. Dr. Nguyen's practice has been available to people from all over the world. 
across cultures and identities. She has built it as a lighthouse and a safe haven to give the deep support and clarity so you can fulfill the promise that you once made to yourself to live your purpose. Whether you are in New York City or anywhere in the world, visit her at drleanne.com. You can also contact her for a free consultation in person or on Skype. The website again is drleanh.com. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to On Living. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to ldnewin.phd at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Here again is Dr. Leanne Nguyen. So, buddies, I, I am very curious about your process of living and how you let yourself be touched, right, and changed by these men. So, do you know? Do you know how you would change in terms of how you live as a result of, of knowing these men? I think your question just um, was making me think about literally the, the feeling I have when I leave prison, when I leave Guantanamo, and... Um, the relief I feel, to be frank, um, to be to, to walk out of you know I go to the, the federal supermax prison in Florence, Colorado. It's called the ADX prison to see uh, someone who's serving a life sentence there in solitary confinement. Um, when I leave that prison, I am always grateful to feel the sun on my face because it literally you know you descend down two floors to get to the meeting rooms um half the prison is built underground it holds over 400 people in small boxes um for 22 to 24 hours a day so there is a level of um relief and gratitude i feel every time i leave and that's just honest and i feel that when mm-hmm. i get on a plane and i'm leaving guantanamo um mm-hmm. and then that is followed by you know, the more I've done this work, I haven't really gotten used to um, what I see. I mean, I haven't gotten used to going to prison to meet with clients or used to their conditions. And I think what has actually just happened is deeper and deeper um, disbelief, kind of, and even terror at what th- what those conditions are like and what we do, wh- what conditions, you know, 2.3 million prisoners in the United States live in, this, this idea of putting people in, disappearing them kind of in these structures in our cities and towns and, and territories all over the world. 
um, and creating this sort of alternate existence where they are just removed from ordinary life and are confined. It's the idea of confinement really terrorizes me, actually, and I think of it now on um, in just the scale that we do it on in terms of just mm-hmm. prisons across the country and, and around the world. So I think um, it, it's just made me... Um, do that split screen a lot of just the movement and freedom that I have and alongside the confinement of my clients and imagining that for so many thousands and millions of other people. And I think a lot about the arbitrariness. I think some of the terror comes from thinking about how arbitrary it is that Mm-hmm. Um, really, you or I or anyone has the freedom and rights that we have, and so many others don't. And how much circumstance um, has to do with that? And I, you yeah. know, it's arbitrary because I don't accept. And if I think if you've done this work, I don't think you can accept that people who are, who have been convicted or are in detention, even without charge, um, are there for legitimate reasons across the board. Um, you know, in Guantanamo, they're being held without charge, so there's been no real process, criminal process at all, for their imprisonment, which will potentially last for their lives. But in the United States, too, I'm, it is um, far from, you know, the fact that, that everyone, uh, you know, who's being held in that system is there for, for just reasons. I mean, we mm-hmm. put people away for life, for nonviolent um for nonviolent offenses like, you know, being a middleman in a, in a drug mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. crime or right. writing, you know, three bad checks. Um, you know, it, it's... Um, so when I think about just what the law allows, um, not just... Again, at Guantanamo, it's, a, it's about lawlessness because um, the government's position initially was that, you know, the Constitution didn't apply and these men didn't have rights and couldn't go to court and they're being held without charge. But when I think about what the law within the United States allows and legalizes and how that sort of sanctions, you know, provides a sort of legitimacy of this veneer of legitimacy to imprisonment, um, you know, it doesn't take away, I guess, the point being from the, the, the real arbitrariness of um, imprisonment here. And so I, mm-hmm. you know, I think a lot about, right, just um, the randomness of yeah. the fact but that you, I yeah, you're talking can about and, and others can't. Right. I mean, you're talking about at the most basic visceral level, the meaning of freedom. Right. Like the freedom to, to breathe in the fresh air, you know, to right. turn your your face to the sun you know, at that most basic exactly. level. And also, I, I, I want to know, what about when you leave and then you, what, what about when you make contact with the human world? Does that change also from your, you know, because of your experience with these men? Mm-hmm. You're um, talking about making contact with the free physical world, <laughs> and mm-hmm. I'm curious about what is it like, right. you know, when you go back home or to your office or or, or just to to uh, the, the the normal world of of New York. Is it disorienting to interact with people? It's initially it's initially disorienting a bit because we, in with Guantanamo we can't really talk about. Um, so much of what happens in the prison and in our meetings because of all the secrecy rules. But I think actually what happens is that when I get back and with distance again, um, things sort of return to normal, you know, and I sort of am in my routine again and that sort of visceral feeling that you were talking about of 
recognizing my freedom and the terror of not having freedom, literally not being able to move and being confined on a patch of land for years and decades and life, that visceral terror, I think that dissipates um, when I leave. And I think that's part of how imprisonment in the United States and Guantanamo have been allowed, how they're able to continue to exist is because of the lack of closeness, um, the lack of proximity to those places, and how it really does become sort of out of sight, out of mind, even for mm-hmm. lawyers, even for advocates who go down. Um, yeah. There is a different intensity of feeling I have when I am sitting across the table from someone in a meeting room or in the prison or driving away from it or flying away from it than I do in my apartment in New York, you know, where mm-hmm. I'm just, it's just normal life. And that is, um, that's part of the challenge and I think part of the problem is that we don't, most of us don't see. We never get close at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, we mm-hmm. may read, we may read about it or we may listen to an interview like this, but we never really get close and it takes that proximity, I think, to trigger that visceral feeling and then that triggers, um, I think, the feeling of needing to do something about it or sort of mm-hmm. finding it intolerable um, yeah. that people would yeah. exist in those conditions. Yeah. What do you... How do I phrase the question... What what do you observe of how they of how these men held on to their humanity? Mm. What makes them human when you interacted with them, when you talked to them and, and sit across from them? What made them recognizable to you, you know, as as people? Mm-hmm. After all that they had gone through, after everything that they were still living in, what was the one element that still made them human to you? Right. <clears throat> You know, Leanne, I, it's, a, it's a funny question to me because I'm so, I mean, they're people. They're people to me. And I think the question comes from, and you're not the only one who's asked it. You know, I was at a prisoner's rights conference um, a couple weeks ago, and, and another lawyer who goes to prison in the United States regularly heard about Guantanamo, and he said, oh, well, what are they like? You know, um, because there's this image of these men that is, you know, um, superhuman, super, super monster, super predators. I mean, they're just. They've become well, no, I'm not talking yeah. about that. I'm not talking about the criminalizing effect, but just the fact that they have been so dehumanized, so beaten mm-hmm. down, and stripped of all the normal things, right. right, that we rely on to stay alive and to be human. So, mm-hmm. what do they hold on to? How are they? Ma- what is the thing that they are still able to keep alive? Um, in in their relationship with you, in their being with you? Well, I think, I mean, um, I think this goes to just the innate instinct to survive that is so strong and deep in everyone, whether you are fighting illness um, or, you know, in prison or in the middle of a war zone or whatever it is. I think it is, it is, it is so strong, um, you know, it's innate. And so I think that it's different for every person there, but, you know, there's just a will to live and and survive that continues for most of them. Um, even those who say they are hopeless um, and have given up. I mean, I have a client who has said that to me, um, but he's still getting on the phone with me 
and he's mm-hmm. still meeting with me, and he's still part of a petition in court. So it's still there. Um, I think ways of asserting that will are also important. So um, things like pro- you know protesting um, have been really important, actually, despite the risks to health, like, and I'm thinking about hunger strikes mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that people right. have gone on. Um, there's been risk to their health, but I think that basic act of asserting one's will to live, even in that way, right. um, is part of survive, showing that you're still here. You want desperately to stay alive. You are still trying to be mm-hmm. heard. Um, mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. in those ways I've seen it. Um, I'm thinking also about a particular man who several years ago the government had cleared for a release and had offered him resettlement. He was Yemeni, offered him resettlement to a third country in Europe. He couldn't go home. He refused to get on the plane. He refused release at that time um, because his will to live actually was so strong. And it was written about in the press as sort of, um, you know, they had psychologists on who were sort of analyzing him from a distance and saying, well, he mu- this must be learned helplessness. Yeah, there must be something wrong because how could you be in Guantanamo and refuse a chance for release? I had met with him and we talked about this and I wanted him to get on the plane. But mm-hmm. the fact that he didn't to me was not, um, wasn't a, a mental defect. It was actually right. asserting that life to him meant being with his family after years of having been in Guantanamo, and the idea of being resettled in a random country where he would be barred from seeing them wasn't living to him. And mm-hmm. so he was going to hold out to, you know, to try to um, have the life that he deserved and wanted. It was a way of asserting his rights. Um, so in that sort of distorted way, you know, it meant that he went back to his cell, um, but uh, to me it was actually an act of will. Um, an expression yeah. of will or an assertion of will and, and right. a desperate, yeah, a desperate expression of wanting to have a meaningful life. Yeah, um, yeah. And and to him, he was eventually released to his family. Ah, uh, it is, this is such a beautiful anecdote and it goes straight, you know, to what, um, to what the show is about and to what life is about. You're saying, you know, it's that this man was able to say, even in that, in such dehumanizing circumstance, to say, this is who I am. This is how I want to live. This is what is important to me. And I have the control over saying that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Right. And, right? And holding out for that. And, and even, even a man who has nothing was able to say that. And mm-hmm. my gosh, I, I, I don't know, I don't think that you plan for this answer, but thank you for giving me the answer to, to the question really of what makes them and hopefully what makes us human, right? That mm-hmm. will, that ability to say, this is, this is my life. <laughs> right. You can shit on it, you can take it away, right. but this is right. how I am going to live it, and I'm going to try to say it and live it. Um, exactly. that's, it's great, and that should apply, right, not just to the detainees, but to, to every single one of us um, to turn our face to the sun and to try to live the life that, that we think we deserve, that we want to, and uh, hopefully we can all get some support. Uh, for that, and I am thankful 
um, that we were able to meet today, Pradis. And I hope mm-hmm. that you, when you go back to your work, to your life, to your child, your family, I hope that you get a lot of support and beauty and sunlight. <laughs> for what you are trying to do in your life. All right, everyone, we have to uh, say goodbye and I will find you again next week. Take care. Until then, everyone. Thank you for tuning to On Living, the trauma and beauty of being human. Please join Dr. Leanne Nguyen again next Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And enjoy being alive.